If you would at this time, would you stand with me out of respect for God's word as we read together from Matthew, the first chapter. Beginning with verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph awoke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Father, just now we come to worship you this day through the study of your word. May our hearts be open to the truth you now reveal to us in Christ our Savior, in whose name we pray, amen. Well, let's keep our Bibles open to Matthew 1, if you would, please. As you know, Matthew is recording this eyewitness account of Christ's fulfillment of all of the Old Testament promises and pictures and prophecies. And since Matthew is writing to the Jews, they would only be interested in the legal line of Joseph, the male line. And so he starts with this genealogical record of Joseph. The Jews used these um, genealogies to determine inheritances of land and of wealth and so forth. And so what Matthew is showing is that, that Christ's entrance into humanity in the fullness of time, as we saw last week, was just as the Lord had promised. He had given him this genealogical roadmap, beginning back with Abraham, when he said, Abraham, I am going to bless all the nations of the earth through your seed. There's going to be somebody who's going to come into humanity through your line that will redeem men from every tongue, tribe, and nation on earth. And he had also given a promise to King David. There is that same one who is coming into humanity will be in your lineage, whose kingdom will have no end. So he shows them how Christ's entrance into humanity was not by means necessarily of Joseph's seed, but that he fulfilled the legal requirements by Joseph marrying Mary. Mary was the literal human vessel through whom the Lord was fulfilling this. And so by Joseph's marriage to Mary, he would fulfill all of those promises that were given to Abraham and to David and to others Though he would not be of Adam's seed, 
He would come from seed of woman. And it couldn't be just any woman. Mary fulfills the um, requirements, you might say, in the fact that she is a descendant of David also. She is a descendant of Judah. She's a descendant of Abraham. She's a descendant of Heber and, and Shem and Seth. And she goes all the way back. Luke will take you all the way back in her lineage to the garden where the promise was first made to Adam and Eve. That the Lord will send one who will crush the serpent's head. Who will destroy sin, Satan, and death for all eternity. And it will come through woman's seed. So, following the human genealogy of Joseph, the legal line, Matthew now writes in verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. You know what's interesting about that? If you look back in verse 1, Matthew 1.1, the word translated birth in verse 18 is genesis. That's the same word that's translated in verse 1, genealogy. In other words, here's the human genealogy, the, the human roadmap the Lord gave you through the Old Testament. And now I am going to cover the divine side of the promise that was made to Adam and Eve in the garden. That's why if you eliminate the last three words of verse 18, you have a major scandal on your hands. Do you see that? Mary who is betrothed to Joseph, is with child. They're not married. Now verse 19 says that Joseph is her husband. How can that be? How can he be her husband and they're not married? And then Matthew says that Joseph no longer wants to pursue this relationship because of this situation. He doesn't want to publicly shame this young girl who is obviously a very devout lady who comes from a very humble but noble family. She has proven herself to be a virtuous teenager. And so his remedy for the problem is just very simple. He's very quietly going to put her aside. He's going to divorce her. Now, before we go further, it might be helpful to just ask ourselves, who is this Mary and Joseph? We don't know a lot about them except that their families are from Judea. However, they don't live in Judea. They live 70 miles north of Bethlehem in Nazareth of Galilee. And Joseph's family has a carpenter shop there. That's what they do for a living. They're, they're very blue-collar folks. As Nathaniel said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Why would he say that? Because Nazareth is in Galilee, and Galilee is a despised area. I mean, you'll remember when the kingdom split and the northern tribes uh, went through a civil war and seceded from the south and left Judea, and, and the tribe of Benjamin that was incorporated into Judea left the, left the southern kingdom where only uh, Rehoboam would reign. <coughs> and Jeroboam and the other ten tribes formed their own nation of Israel. And after that, after there were several kings who engaged in idolatry, the Lord brought judgment against them by allowing the Assyrians to come in in 722 B.C. and overtake this northern area. 
So for 700 years, these people have been engaged in, in a very corrupt Assyrian culture that's resulted in immoral behavior, very rude dialects, a lot of religious compromise. I mean, if ever there was a place that needed the gospel, it was Nazareth. It was the Las Vegas of that day. So these families of Mary and Joseph, devout, committed, they loved the Lord, but they live in a pathetic region called Galilee. And now this young couple is going to come south of very hilly terrain, all uphill to this Judean region because there was a guy named Gaius Octavius, <coughs> also known as <coughs> Caesar Augustus. Uh, Gaius Octavius was the grandnephew of Julius Caesar. When Julius was assassinated, as you will remember, the Ides of March, right? Uh, Gaius and his brother-in-law, Antony, ruled together in Rome because Antony was married to Gaius's sister. Well, he left Gaius's sister and got with Cleopatra, and so now the two of them go to war, and it is Gaius who wins. And so Gaius is now going to become actually the, technically the first Caesar of Rome. And he's going to give himself the name Octavi, uh, uh, um, Augustus. His name was Gaius Octavius. He's going to give himself the name Augustus which means the exalted one. And so he's going to be known as Caesar Augustus. And so now he's just beginning his reign. And so he issues this decree, it's the only one that I'm aware of in history, where you have to return to the city of your ancestry. After this, there will be other registrations, but you don't have to do it except in this case. And so everyone within the Roman Empire, you have to return to the city of your ancestry where you're going to have to register. And so these two young people, why are they making this journey together? Why are they doing that? They're betrothed. What's that mean? Well, a Hebrew marriage involved a betrothal period. And uh, this is, is uh, a much, uh, much greater extent than what we call an engagement. It's a... Um, uh, it's the first half of the commitment, condition. The second half is the kupa. That's the marriage ceremony. And so if you're going to get married, you've got both halves here. You've got the time of betrothal, and then you have the ceremony itself. And these are arranged marriages. So you've got this family of Mary who says, look, we've got this beautiful young lady here. Strong moral convictions, strong faith of the tribe of Judah. And they're talking to the family of Joseph. And his parents said, look, our son is well grounded in truth. And we want him to have a wife that is a virtuous young lady. To bring up our grandchildren according to the word of the Lord. And so... This arrangement a lot of times could be made when they were just 12, 13, 14 years old. There would be this contract. 
And the way they would seal this contract is the father of the bride was given the mohar. The mohar was a dowry that was paid to him. And it was to cover not just the wedding expenses, but it was like an insurance policy that should the, the husband-to-be die or should he not go through with the contract, this would be money that had been given to the bride's father to take care of her, to provide for her. And once this contract is sealed, the couple is considered legally bound, though the, the, the coupah, the, the marriage ceremony and the consummation, the, the consummation that makes them one in the eyes of the Lord has not yet occurred. Sometimes that wouldn't occur until up to a year later. Because this betrothal period was kind of a time of probation. This is when the young lady would begin to prepare for her role as a wife. And the husband, he would go off and begin to complete the addition to his parents' home that would be their house. This is where they would live. And he would establish himself as, as far as how he would provide for her with an income. And as far as how he would provide for a place for her to live. And so this was all done during the betrothal. And if during this time, the young lady, who very young, 14, maybe 15 years old, if she or even the young man if either one of them come up immoral, if either one of them show themselves to be unfaithful, they have broken the contract. And so this is going to demand a public denouncement. And because they are in this contract together, in this betrothal period, it requires a divorce to nullify it. And during the betrothal, which is, again, far more significant than, than what we think of in, as far as an engagement goes, you've got to remember, Mary's expecting. This is scandalous. And the most appropriate way to handle it is for Joseph to, to simply... Proclaim that she's been unfaithful. Hasn't she? She's with child. It's not mine. It's not mine. This word for divorce here, apelousai, means to send away, to release, to, to set free. Let her go. And you got to keep in mind, Mary has not likely told Joseph what it was that she was told by Gabriel. Gabriel, by the way, was the same messenger the Lord sent to Daniel back in the 5th, 6th century B.C. The same messenger that the Lord sent to, to Zechariah uh, telling him about the birth of John the Baptist. This is the same guy, same messenger. And the Lord sent him to Mary to tell her what was going to happen. And the fact that Mary doesn't tell Joseph really should not surprise us. Let me ask you, how many of you guys would believe it if your fiancé said, I've never been with a man, but this angel told me the Holy Spirit is ushering in through me the Messiah. Would you believe that? Would you? No, you wouldn't. And you shouldn't. Don't believe that. Because that was only true in Mary's case. 
And that's why Luke tells us that she just simply pondered all these things in her heart. She couldn't tell anybody. Who's going to believe her? She's living with a calling that others simply cannot understand. Does Joseph think that she's unfaithful? Yeah, he does. Does he think that she's immoral? He hadn't believed that about her up until now, but, but now, at least initially, he does believe that. That's tough to live with. And sometimes the call of the Lord upon our lives is not easy to bear. And we don't know whether it was Gabriel or someone else, but as Joseph is considering these things, an angel of the Lord appears to him in a dream saying, Joseph, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now let me ask you, how many people in Scripture believe that this is a virgin birth? The angel believes it. Mary obviously believes it. She knows she's never been with a man. Joseph will eventually believe it. The question is, how does this happen? How does it happen? The, 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 the same thing Mary asked the angel is, how is this going to happen? How is this going to happen since I am a virgin? That's Luke 1.34. And the angel said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Oh, okay. Who's the Holy Spirit? You know, some think he's just the impersonal force of God. That's not true. Some think it's just another name for Jesus. He's the Spirit, Christ is the flesh. That's not true. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one, but they are each very distinct. The Holy Spirit hovered over the face of the deep at creation. And yet, as we just studied in Colossians 1, it says that all things were created by Christ. Christ. Who said, the Father and I are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He said to the disciples, I'm going to leave because I'm going to send the Spirit of truth to you. This is John 14. Again, he repeats it in John 16. I'm leaving. Because I am sending to you the Spirit who will reveal all things to you. This is how you're going to end up with the New Testament. That confirms how the Old Testament was fulfilled. And then explains it through the epistles and promises that I shall return. The Holy Spirit will come and reveal all truth to you. This is how you get the New Testament. Scripture reveals there's no prophecy ever produced by man. But those through whom the Lord gives us his word, they were moved along by the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter 1.21. Just like a wind moves the sails of a boat. The Holy Spirit moved as the scripture was revealed through them. Those born again in Christ have within them the Holy Spirit. As Christ told Nicodemus, Nick, you've got to be born again you got to be born again of the Spirit. So the question becomes then how, though? How did the Holy Spirit knit together 
the pre-existent and eternally holy God of the universe in the womb of a young girl to fulfill the promise the Lord gave to Adam and Eve in the beginning that one born of the seed of woman would be fully human, would come and have his heel bruised at the cross when he crushes sin, Satan, and death for all eternity, which is the only way fallen men could ever be reconciled and restored to their creator. Only way. How does that happen? In the same way the Holy Spirit overshadowed men to give us a divine word without error, the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary to give us the divine word made flesh without sin. If you're saying, I don't understand that, let me ask you this. Do you understand natural birth? Do you? Do you understand how two cells fuse together and result in a skeletal system with muscles and organs and a brain and a spinal cord and eyes and nose and ears and lungs and a heart? Do you understand that? I mean, you know that it happens. You can even kind of see as it's happening on the ultrasound, can't you? But who makes it happen? Who makes it happen? Those miracles occur every day. We can't understand it, and yet we don't question it. Joseph didn't understand either. He's trying to figure it out. What is he to do? And so the Lord sends an angel to say, don't fear taking this beautiful, godly, devout young lady as your wife. She's ever bit as committed to the Lord as your family believed her to be. As a matter of fact, so much so, the Lord chose her as the means for Christ's entrance into humanity. Joseph, she's found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And she was perfectly qualified for this. You say, what do you mean? She's of the right lineage, Joseph. She's of the right lineage. She too is a descendant of David. She too is a descendant of Judah. She too is a descendant of Abraham. That's why she's going to be in the right place at the right time. To go to Bethlehem in the fullness of time to fulfill the prophecy that Micah gave 700 years earlier. And she is of the right character. She's a virgin, as predicted would occur through Isaiah 800 years earlier. And she's from Nazareth, fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah. The Messiah will be a Nazarene from a lowly, despised place of sinners. So how, how does the angel convince Joseph of this? How does he assure him of this? How does he let him know that this is, is, is not just uh, a, a dream that happens to come true? This is a truth that is confirmed by his dream. How does he do that? He assures him by saying, Joseph, son of David, you know what the scripture says. 
She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. In other words, this birth is not the result of Mary's infidelity. This birth is the fulfillment of the Lord's promise to save us. And then as Matthew will do 76 times, 76 times through this gospel, he will add to the narrative as it's all unfolding, he adds the Old Testament text that proves the veracity of God's word. The fulfillment of Old Testament scripture in the fullness of time. He says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin, the Parthenos, shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Let me give you the background to that. It's very interesting. Let's go back to 700 B.C. Let's go back even before that, 730 B.C. Who's king in the southern kingdom? It's Ahaz. Remember Ahaz? He's the grandson of Uzziah. Uzziah died when Isaiah's there in the temple, Isaiah 6. Remember that? Well, let me. Ahaz is not following in the footsteps of his father or his grandfather, Uzziah. Why? He's engaged in cultural compromise. So what's he doing? Well, he's taking his eyes off of the Lord and he's focusing them on national events. And he's got these nations around him that are coming against him. And so he is so concerned about accommodating them that he begins to adopt their religions, thinking that if he compromises with them, they will not attack him anymore. That's what he's concerned with. He's already lost 100,000 soldiers. And his cities are being plundered right now. And so you know what he does? He calls on the strongest nation of that day, Assyria. Assyria? You mean the Assyrians that are going to take down the northern kingdom just eight years from now? Yeah. He calls on them to be his protector. And so he wants them to help him defeat the king of Syria that's coming against him, to defeat the king of Samaria that's coming against him, to defeat these, these smaller nations. He's counting on Assyria to help him to do that and to show his appreciation to the Assyrians. Oh, he's going to build altars to the gods of Damascus. And he's going to put these altars on every street corner. He's even going to assemble an altar to the gods of Damascus in the temple. And on top of that, he's going into the temple and he's going to rob it of gold. He's going to go into his own palace and rob it of gold. Why? Well, he's going to use it to pay his bribes to Assyria in exchange for their protection of him. And the Lord tells Isaiah, you go to Ahaz and you tell him, stop it. Stop trying to protect yourself by carnal means. You need to trust me. You know what Ahaz says? Not doing it. Isaiah said, listen, the Lord will give you a sign that you can trust him. And Ahaz says, no, I don't want a sign. I'm going to do this my way. Why? 
because I'm scared. I've worked this all out. I, I, I think that Assyria is the one that I can trust more than I can trust the Lord. <coughs> Don't you realize these kings that are coming against you are nothing more than stubs of smoking firebrands to the Lord? They're just mere men. They'll return to dust just like that. No. I can't trust the Lord. Why? You know why? Many believe that Ahaz realized that it was the Lord who was bringing judgment upon him because he refused to repent of his idolatry. And so now he is angry with the Lord for bringing judgment against him. And so he's blaming the Lord for the mess that he's in. And when you're blaming the Lord for bringing judgment against you, for chastening you, you certainly don't want to trust him in that moment, do you? And Ahaz didn't. He didn't want to accept responsibility for his wickedness. He didn't want to, to, to deal with the hardness of his own heart. He chose instead to trust his alliance with Assyria. In that context... Isaiah responds with this prophecy from the Lord. He said, the Lord is going to give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Spurgeon said this is one of the most difficult texts in all of the Bible. You know why? Because you have to understand the Old Testament context in order to appreciate the New Testament fulfillment of it in Christ. Say, then what's the context? There's a young woman in the royal household who's about to be married. And Isaiah uses the word, the Hebrew word here, Alma. It means a, a young unmarried girl. When they translate this into the Greek in the Septuagint, the scholars come together and they come across this word Alma. And they translate it Parthenos. Parthenos, it's a young woman who has never known a man, never. That's how the Hebrew scholars translated Alma more than 200 years before the Holy Spirit through Matthew applies this to the virgin birth of Christ. Uh, just as a little footnote here in Athens, if you've ever been to Athens, there's this huge colonnaded temple there that was built to who? The virgin goddess Diana. And what do they call it? They call it the Parthenon. Ahaz and Isaiah both know this young girl. And Isaiah says by the time she's married and she conceives a son and she names him Emmanuel, which means God with us, not even knowing, knowing nothing about how the Lord would use her decision to, to, to uh, serve as a prophecy and a fulfillment in the coming of Christ. She knows nothing about that. She just gives her son this name signifying that she trusts that the Lord will indeed provide for his people. That's why she names her son that. And by the time this child is old enough to eat solid food, Isaiah says, the king of Syria and the king of Samaria and the kings that are coming against you will all be history. 
They'll long be gone. They'll be dust. They will have been defeated. They'll be gone. They're out of the picture. That's how quickly the Lord turns things around. And so this sign of, of, of a child that's coming forth from this girl who has not yet known a man, but she gets married and she conceives and she gives birth. And by the time that child is just a little thing, very little time has passed. And yet the Lord has already turned things around. Through his omniscience, through his omnipotence, all of the situations that you fear as humans are nothing to the Lord. He has it all totally in hand. And when the Lord allows the Assyrians now to chasten Judah because of their idolatry, one of the things that Ahaz said he was concerned about was preserving the line of David. Well, Ahaz, you can't do that, but the Lord can. <coughs> and he does. He does. Even when Assyria comes in, he preserves the genealogical line of David just as he promised. <coughs> and the Holy Spirit now says through Matthew that this text in Isaiah is an Old Testament typology. It's an Old Testament event with a New Testament significance. And when the prophet said, the Lord shall give you a sign, he uses the plural you, indicating that Isaiah is not just talking to Ahaz, he's talking to the whole nation of Judah. He's telling them, none of these kings or anyone else will be able to destroy the line of David. And when the Lord gives his word, he keeps it. He is sovereign, and he can do that. And in the same way, one of the signs the Lord gave that he keeps his word is this. He promised, he promised in Genesis 3 that he would send one to crush sin, Satan, and death. Born of the seed of woman. And now that's what you're seeing unfold. Born of a virgin. Entering humanity not by Adam's seed but by means of the Holy Spirit signifying his divinity. Through woman proving his humanity. And he will be called Emmanuel with us. El, God. This Parthenos shall be with child and this Emmanuel will not just be a symbol of God with us. He will be the very presence of God with us. You know, whenever you see that L-E-L -E -L in English as a prefix or a suffix, it's an abbreviation of Elohim. Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. So whenever you see El, El Shaddai, what is that? El, God, God Almighty. Daniel, Dan, Dan, my judge. El is God. My judge is God. Remember what Hannah said when she wanted a child. She's going to name him Samuel. What's that? Heard by God. Elijah. God is Yahweh. When Christ cries from the cross, Eloi, Eloi. My God, my God. 
It's an interesting footnote regarding Elohim that the im at the end means it's plural. Father, Son, Holy Spirit are one but plural. In the beginning, Elohim, Father, Son, Holy Spirit created the heavens and the earth. So the Holy Spirit now overshadows this Parthenos, this virgin, fulfilling an Old Testament prophetic typology given in Isaiah's day 800 years earlier. They shall call his name Emmanuel, not a name by which they will speak to him, but a name by which they will describe him. He is God with us, divinity within humanity in our presence. And then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife. Joseph wakes up and he does exactly what he is told. He goes to Mary's house. Mary, you're not going to believe what I was just told. You are not with a child. It's just any child. Mary, the Lord is going to bring about the long-awaited incarnate arrival of our Redeemer through you. And Mary says, I know. I know. He told me before he told you. But I couldn't tell you because you wouldn't believe me. But Joseph, I'm telling you, I've never been unfaithful to you, never. Yet look at me. Look at me. There's no other explanation except what the angel said has to be true. I know, Mary. I know. I believe you. We're canceling the divorce. And we're going through with the hoopah. But he knew her not until she had given birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. Joseph's public statement at the hoopah is we are not consummating this union until after the son is born. Did they go on to have other children? Well, of course they did. Of course they did. That's why Christ's teaching in the synagogue in Nazareth created such a stir. He was teaching with such wisdom. He was demonstrating such power that it was perplexing to them. How can this be? I mean, we know his family, right? Is he not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother Mary? Are not his brothers James and Hosea and Simon and Judas and so forth and his sisters? Are they not all with us? In other words, how can someone obviously fully human do that which is obviously only something the Lord can do? How is that possible? How can he heal like this? They can't figure it out. They cannot figure it out by carnal means any more than you can. Any more than Ahaz could. You know, many of you probably have relatives and friends who don't understand you. They're so focused on the horizontal events of life that it just makes no sense to them that you have this vertical relationship with the Lord through 
through faith that, that trust in him in ways that, that Ahaz absolutely refused to do. And most of your friends probably refused to do. And yet here you are, like Mary and Joseph, you. At times puzzled by events that you can't fully understand, nor can you completely explain. But nevertheless, by the grace of God, here you are trusting him. Worshiping him, thanking him, serving him, seeking to be used by him for his glory. Why is that? It's because of the grace of God. It's because of the grace of God. And I want to encourage you to invite your relatives and your friends and your neighbors. Yes, I know it's supposed to be cold. Some say it might even be below zero. That's why you have heaters in your car. And we will have heaters in this building. And yes, I know we were not prepared for you last year. There was a greater number that came at Christmas than we were prepared for. And it was very confusing and kind of a disaster. That will not be repeated. We're going to be prepared this year. We're going to have chairs everywhere. I hope you'll come next Sunday. I hope you'll bring your family, your friends. It's Christmas Day. Come and let us lift our voices in praise. You bring them, we'll seek them. And together we will worship and give thanks for Emmanuel, God with us, whose name is Jesus, because he saves his people from their sins. Do you have any questions? You can go to the Connect table or you can meet with me in my study this week. I'll be here all week. Let's stand as we pray together. Lord, we thank you for this, this time of the year when we are reminded to stop with all of the hustle and bustle of life and just give thanks. Give thanks. That though we do not deserve it, you have been so merciful and long-suffering and gracious and kind to send Christ, born of woman, fully human, of the Holy Spirit, fully divine, to die a death that we could not die that satisfies the just wrath we deserve, that we might live a life that we could not live outside of Christ. Thank you, Father, for how you have provided for the forgiveness of our sins. And we ask that you hear our prayers and you allow the peace of Christ to reign within our hearts. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.